also a Unitarian Universalist minister. She's for many years has been the uh, the head of one of the Unitarian Universalist seminaries in California, and. And uh, Dr. Parker and Dr. Nakashima Brock wrote this book, which is about sort of the, the Christian story of self-sacrifice and, um, and redemptive violence, you know, um, because of their own personal experiences with how their internalized messages of self-sacrifice as a Christian value had traumatized their own lives. They have stories of accepting verbal and physical abuse in their lives, kind of um, the deadliest, most damaging form of of self-sacrifice. And so they wrote this book wanting to explore that concept, to break it open a little bit. You know, the idea that the Christian story always had to be tied to self-sacrifice and to redemptive violence in, in particular. But that story is there. That's why they had to write a book to break it open, because, it, because it's a story that kind of runs through our collective consciousness. It plays into, I think, our own desire to be salvific. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about, um, uh, in sort of an, an epic platform, it was of epic length, not necessarily epic... Um, <laughs> epic, uh, you know, meaningfulness, but epic length. I talked about uh, sexism for part of the platform and, um, and the temptation that women sometimes have to fall into the role of the kind of long-suffering cook, dishwasher, and nose wiper, right? And, um, and there are elements of that idea of self-sacrifice in that temptation, I think. A self-sacrifice which is both sort of deeply unsatisfying to us, but also brings an element of satisfaction with it, you know, that we're, that we're playing that self-sacrificial role. And that's another kind of damage done all around, really. As I talked about in that platform, the damage is done not just to women, but to men as well in, in, um, in different sex relationships. And I think about that song on country radio, our boyfriend in the song is not exactly called to be his best self when his self-sacrificial girlfriend just lets him keep on being a bad boy. There's a side note. I'm not sure quite where to put it, but I, I wanted to make sure to um, not to leave you with the concept that, um, that Christianity always has a self-sacrificial message. And I encourage you to think um, about, you know, books, books like Proverbs of Ashes, books that have tried to pull apart the Christian message a little bit more. And I, I'd love to talk about that uh, to anyone at some point. But, but there is, I think, something there, that idea of self-sacrificial love or a kind of accepting anything love, you know. And it's hardly just a Christian concept in our society these days. There's an idea, and I want to be clear that it's an idea that I at least partly embrace and like, an idea that love requires a certain amount of acceptance, right, of support, that loving another person involves forgiveness and starting over and a pull toward relationship. But that idea can get twisted, too, can get pulled into that sort of negative self-sacrificial place where we're asked to accept anything that our partner does. There was an essay um, on Huffington Post recently uh, by Matt Walsh, and he was commenting on that um, that idea of sort of um, being asked to accept anything. There's a quote which is attributed to Marilyn Monroe, although apparently we don't really know if she said it. Um, but it's so popular that it has its own Facebook page, this 
quote. And people make all sorts of like little drawings, you know, with the flowers and then the quotes and like beautiful cursive lines and the whole thing, which says, um, the quote is, if you can't accept me at my worst, then you don't deserve me at my best. Right? That's the that's this very popular quote. I think the best way to sum up Matt Walsh's response to that concept in this essay that he wrote is actually the title of the essay. You don't really need to go any further. The title is, if, if I can't accept you at your worst, then maybe you should stop being so horrible. <laughs> and then he kind of expands on that as he goes along. But he's looking at that idea of self-sacrificial love. The idea that in a partnership, in a relationship, we have to be martyrs, not even martyrs, but the country song tells us, my gosh, we actually have to be Jesus. (laughs) That when our friend or our spouse or our country-loving boyfriend stays out all night over and over again, we should just say, oh, well, it's my cross to bear and somehow forgiving you again will lead to the salvation of the world. So that doesn't seem quite right. But then I don't know. Many of you were here last week when our children's story for the month was shared, this beautiful story called Tsunami. And it's this uh, story that's told many different ways. We use a a particular book, but it's a a folktale, I think, originally. And it's a story about... um, about an old man in a village, um, the wise elder, and uh, he lives up on a hill. He's the richest man in the village. He has all of these rice fields. And, um, and so there's a special festival, and everyone in the village has gone down to the beach. And, uh, and he stays up for some reason. He's just not quite sure. And, uh, and there's an earthquake, but then it's over. It's, it's not that bad, I guess. And people continue their festival and their party down on the beach. And he's up on the hill, and he sees... A tsunami starting. He sees the ocean go back in preparation to come forward, and he knows what will happen. And so, in this act of what can only be called self-sacrifice, he lights his rice fields on fire, drawing the people up from the beach below. They see the hill on fire, all of his rice fields, all of his wealth burning. And they, and they run up, And in that way, he saves the village, all of the people, from certain destruction. I love that story. I'm impressed with myself that I got through it without crying, actually. Usually, when I... When I tell or even hear that story, I cry because it's just so beautiful, you know, this wise village elder saving his people by setting his own fields on fire. And it is a story about sacrifice, about making a choice that hurts you because it's necessary for the people that you love. That pull toward love as sort of beautifully sacrificial is present in songs too, songs about love and about friendship. There's a a gorgeous bluegrass song I know the version by Alison Krause. I also listen to bluegrass, which is what you're supposed to listen to, you know. There's a beautiful song, um, I Want a Simple Love Like That. Anyone know that song? Always giving, never asking back. For when I'm in my final hour looking back, I hope I had a simple love like that. 
The singer is talking about her, her grandfather and about the love he had for his family, a love always giving and never asking back. And that's, that's so beautiful, isn't it? We, we see that and we do want that simple love. We want that experience of giving to another person. So there's something wonderful there. There's another essay going around. It also ended up on Huffington Post, although I sort of think everything might end up on Huffington Post, you know, if more than 10 people read it. But, um, but, but it speaks to how I think many of us think about marriage, that sort of that beautiful sense of sacrifice. It's written by Seth Adam Smith. And the, the sort of conceit of the article is he's, uh, he's talking, it's called marriage isn't for you. And, and so he's saying, well, marriage really isn't for me. And he's talking about his wife. And so, of course, you get a little bit nervous at the beginning. But he, he, talks, um, he talks about wondering right before he got married whether, um, whether it was a good idea to get married, whether he was ready and his wife was the right person. And, you know. and so he quotes advice from his father. You don't marry to make yourself happy. You marry to make someone else happy. More than that, your marriage isn't for yourself. You're marrying for a family, not just for the in-laws and all of that nonsense. (laughs) I I really like my in-laws, actually. But for your future children, who do you want to help you raise them? Who do you want to influence them? Marriage isn't for you. It's not about you. Marriage is about the person that you married. There's another side note here, which is that marriage is by no means the only kind of relationship that this applies to. I, I realize I'm, I'm kind of talking a lot about marriage. It happens to be the kind of relationship that people most often write about when they're thinking about the idea of love. But I want to invite you to do some internal translating as you listen, and perhaps you've already been doing that, to think about any deep relationship, a friendship, a relationship with a family member. Marriage, though, and and particularly a wedding, is often a time when we think carefully about the commitment of love, about what love means to us and what we want it to mean to us and the kind of relationship that we want to build. I've actually often thought it it would be so neat to be that intentional about all of our friendships and our family bonds. I think about our baby naming ceremony here, as Mary mentioned, when we're intentional about the kind of relationship we as parents want to build with our children and the community wants to build with the children and parents, with the families we support. But for better or worse, we don't have a whole lot of um, sort of friendship ceremonies, so we'll look at marriage in particular. One of the things that I love about my job is, is that I get to marry people. It's a particular joy. And I often start out by saying that there are a couple of things that I won't do when I'm officiating. You know, when you meet meet a potential officiant for the first time, usually that first conversation is about getting to know each other and everybody figuring out whether they're the right people to work together. Hopefully the the couple has figured that out previously. (laughs) Although, if you think they haven't, it's incumbent upon the officiant to maybe say something. But but the couple is figuring out if the officiant is right to work with them, and the officiant's figuring out if they want to work with this couple. And and so, you know, I try to be upfront about the kind of weddings that I do and, you know, what they might look like, and they can look like this or that, but I won't do this, I won't do that. One of the things that I won't do, I won't pronounce a couple, man and wife. I'll do husband and wife. More frequently, I do partners in life, love, and marriage. I'll use almost any 
phrasing that people like, but I, I just can't do that one. And then there's one other thing that I won't do. You might know the unity candle tradition, which is a, a lovely one, a common ritual in weddings, where you know you have two separate candles, and then from those two candles, you light the one candle in the middle to symbolize kind of the, the, the flames of your own individual lives and then this new life that you're creating together. And I'm happy to do that ritual. I, I really like it. You know, I've done it in different, in different ways with sand and water and all kinds of things that you can combine. But the one thing I won't do is let them blow out the original candles. <laughs> and sometimes people do, you know. You, you light that big candle in the middle, and then you're, you're not quite sure what to do with it, so you just kind of blow out that taper you were working on. But to me, there's a symbol there. <laughs> in the flame, you know, if you take the flame of your own life, and you're combining it with the flame of someone else's life, it really would be sort of a bummer if you lost yours. There are often in the conversations that I have with couples as they get ready for their weddings, often lots of conversation about unity and individuality, about about how to find a balance between the two. And sometimes I find myself doing ceremonies where where we have sort of readings that... Um, that clearly contradict each other, you know. We'll have one reading about sort of creating a new life and two things merging into one and the unity, which is so important, and then we'll counterbalance it with another reading about hanging on to your individuality. And, you know, there's that Khalil Gibran reading, which is so popular about the trees, you know, make not a bond of love. And, um, and so you're supposed to be two trees planted like sort of near each other, but definitely not the same tree because the roots would get messed up. Um, so there's often all this conversation, couples thinking about, about what it means to be one and yet also two. And what they're thinking about, I think, in some ways, it's not exactly about self-sacrifice. It's about loss of self, I think, submersion of self in the new unity that they're creating. Roberta Gilbert, a psychiatrist and family systems thinker, wrote a great book called Extraordinary Relationships, A New Way of Thinking About Human Interactions. I recommend it, although it's a little heady. It's a book about relationships with many charts. So, you know, you have to kind of either skip the charts or like charts. I like charts. Well, Roberta Gilbert is talking about an ideal relationship, and again, it's any kind of relationship, a friendship, a marriage, relationships between family members. And she talks about sort of the continuum of togetherness and individuality, the continuum between that unity candle and the tapers, right? She writes, individuality is surprisingly more important to the success of the relationship. And she talks about an ideal relationship as being separate, equal, and open. There's a chart about it, actually. Separate, equal, and open. There's little circles for each one, I think. Each is responsible for and only for self, she writes. Happiness and emotional fulfillment are seen rather as responsibilities of the self to be undertaken for the self. And then she goes on, and this is the part that's so interesting. 
relationship work, paradoxically. She's talking about how to build a relationship, how to make a relationship better, any, any kind of relationship. Relationship work, paradoxically, is a solitary project. It may feel like growing a self. Relationship creation. Think about that just as you're, as you're planning a marriage or as you, as you struggle with a family member. Not just figuring out how not to lose yourself, how not to blow out your candles when you light that unity candle in the middle, but actually as, as growing a self, as continuing to nurture your own taper candle to kind of fan the flame so that it's even stronger after you've lit the candle in the middle. It's a fascinating way to look at it, I think, in the context of self-sacrifice. It's true for me with, with parenting, actually, which is the kind of relationship and the kind of love that requires rather a lot of sacrifice, I find, putting someone else's needs before your own. But for me to do that adequately, to do it well, actually adequately might be sort of where I, where I stop. I'll just, I'll just, my goal will be adequately. How about that? <laughs> for me to do it adequately as a parent, I need to be clear about my own self. And certainly part of what I'm trying to do in parenting is to help my children grow their own selves to understand themselves as unique and particular individuals, to fan the flame of their own candles. So I think then about the importance of self and the beauty of sacrifice, the beauty in that story tsunami, the beauty of putting someone else first, of a simple love like that, always giving, I think maybe the problem or the tension that we find between that importance of self and the beauty of sacrifice is when we smush them together with a hyphen. When we get to that idea of self-sacrifice, really, which implies perhaps a loss of self, even when it's done willingly, I wonder. I think instead about the idea of sacrifice that grows out of a clear sense of self, that's rooted in self-identity and self-love. Some of this, I think, is about choice. Within a relationship context, it may be about the hope of reciprocity. We think about our wise elder in that tsunami story, who certainly didn't exhibit a lack of self. He was sure about the choice that he was making when he set his rice fields on fire. And in fact, that sacrifice he made lighting those fields on fire, it only worked to save the village because they sacrificed themselves, because of the mutuality of relationship between that wise elder and the villagers, because on the beach when they looked up and saw the hill on fire, they ran up to try to save him. They left whatever it was that they were doing sacrificed ultimately to save themselves. Now maybe the boyfriend in our country song loves his girlfriend like Jesus does too, although I don't think that that's the implication. But there's something there about mutuality, I think, 
that equal part of separate, equal, open. I've been doing some centering and mindfulness work recently that focuses on the heart, the idea of connecting with heart's rhythms as Mary led us during our meditation this morning. And thinking then about the image of the heart in our culture. There's a great book by Gail Godwin, who I know mostly as a a fictional, uh, well, she's not fictional, she writes fiction. As an author of fiction, really beautiful fiction, she has a whole series about a, a, a woman Episcopal priest. But she wrote a, a nonfiction book as well, a book called Heart, all about kind of images of heart in our society. And in one of the chapters, she reflects on the importance of loving oneself. She talks about a concept called um, guard of the heart. It's a concept from monastic life, from Christian monastic life. And it's the idea of being willing to stop what you're doing to help someone else, to stop your party and run up to the hill because you see that the fields are burning. She writes, As near as I can understand it, it's a willing giving over of yourself because you know you're part of a larger whole and are of specific and vital use to that whole. I really like that. I'm going to say it again. That you're part of a larger whole and are of specific and vital use to that whole. And also, you know there is more of you where that came from, so you don't need to hoard. There's something in that, I think, a kind of generosity of spirit, a willing gift that feels central to the idea of the beautiful sacrifice. That when we sacrifice for love, it's not because we think we should or because some country song made it sound good, or even because we thought a religious tradition asked us to do it. That sacrifice, setting our fields on fire to save the village, marriage that's for the other person because we want to make them happy, that that sacrifice is made open-heartedly from our own hearts, our own hearts, which are solid and sure and steady. Our own hearts, which are, after all, our very selves.